Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to Sailing the East. Hi, I'm Bala Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. This is our podcast about sailing the East Coast of the United States. In some episodes, we'll focus on destinations. In others, we'll talk about boats, equipment, and techniques. And when we come across an interesting person, we'll try to get them to be a guest on the podcast as well. But what makes this podcast unusual is that only one of us sails. That would be me, Bela. I've been sailing for over 30 years, not across oceans, but on lakes and coastal cruising on the east coast of the United States. And I, Mike, know very little about sailing. As a matter of fact, I've sunk an unsinkable dinghy. It's kind of my claim to fame in the sailing world. So I'll ask most of the questions and Bela will provide most of the answers. Bela, where are we off to in this episode? Well, today we're going to explore Marion, Massachusetts. Ooh, we're heading to Buzzards Bay. This is one of my favorite places. I have a lot of great memories of this area, Bela, when I lived in Norwood, Massachusetts, uh, back in the, gee, I guess it was late 80s, early 90s, many years ago. Um, tell me about Marion. Yep. Well, uh, if you haven't been to Buzzards Bay, you should put it on your bucket list. It's a great cruising ground. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Marion, which is just located off of Buzzards Bay. Marion and the Beverly Yacht Club are located a short sail off Buzzards Bay in Sipican Harbor. If you're transiting through the Cape Cod Canal on your way north or south, this is a very convenient stopover. If you're a sailor, maybe you've heard about Marion. It is the start of the every other year Marion to Bermuda race. The Marion to Bermuda race is held on odd numbered years. It starts at Marion, Massachusetts, and it ends at Bermuda. It's a distance of 645 nautical miles. The much more famous Newport to Bermuda race is held on even years. So wait, is the idea that you stay there until the next year's race, or do you come back on your own? <laughs> well, uh, the, the, the race is uh, from Marion to Bermuda, and then the following year it's from Newport to Bermuda. And uh, so you, uh, you come how back. You, how do you get back? Well, some people, well, you got to get the boat back, right? So some people sail the boat back. Uh, sometimes some crew will fly back home. It all just all depends. Each one sort of makes their own uh, arrangements for that. But it's one of the uh, races that's been around for a long time. Uh, they typically get 100 or so boats in the Marion to Bermuda race. I believe the Newport to Bermuda race is a little bit larger and uh, a little bit more... Uh, let me use the word professional from the point of view of crews. Uh, I think the Marion Bermuda race runs uh, under a set of rules where uh, you really can't have any paid crew on the boat. Uh, they have to be sort of non-paid, uh, whereas the Newport to Bermuda race is uh, 
more, I'll use the word professional, but I don't mean it from a skill level, but from a perspective of uh, the amount of uh, cash required to actually do the race. Uh, but the Marion uh, race uh, was started by uh, W. David Kingery, uh, who was interested in actually doing a single-handed race from England to Newport. And uh, he, what he did was he sailed alone from Bermuda, or from, from Newport to Bermuda, or excuse me, or to Marion from Bermuda as sort of a training race for himself to kind of see, you know, this is something I really want to do. Uh, and it gave Kingery the concept of a race dedicated to cruising sailors and families. Um, so he came up with this idea. And uh, he got the cooperation and sponsorship from the Royal Academy Amateur Dinghy Club in Bermuda, which is, a, as it sounds like, a, a, a sailing yachting club in Bermuda, and the Beverly Yacht Club, which is located in Marion, Massachusetts, uh, as well as the Blue Water Sailing Club. So these three clubs got together, and the first Marion to Bermuda cruising yacht race was uh, organized in 1977. And it had 104 uh, entrants in it, which is a quite a large race if you think about it. And unlike other offshore races, uh, the Marion to Bermuda race is a non-professional event, like I mentioned before, uh, for non-specialized and relatively, the word relative is important here, inexpensive cruising yachts. Uh, so the race defines itself as a Corinthian event. Uh, and this is one where the owners of the boats are part of the sailing crew and the crew is not paid to take part in the event, sort of what I was alluding to earlier. And the race is run under offshore racing rule handicap, which allows for a wide variety of boats to compete. Because one of the things you have to understand is different boats, different lengths, different designs, some boats intrinsically go faster than other boats. So there's this handicap uh, uh, system in place, Mike, so that even though it's like much like golf, like right? Golf. You can sort yeah. of compare yourself uh, to a really good golfer. And so there's this handicap uh, system in place that sort of uh, puts a coefficient in front of the time, the overall time for a particular boat to get from point A to point B. And it sort of normalizes all the boats that are in, in that event. So you can come in third or fourth place overall, but actually win the event, uh, which is sort of conceptually sometimes a challenge. Uh, but that's the way this particular uh, race is run. Um, so, but but that what that does is is it draws in a lot of different boats, right? It draws in a lot of different boats, a lot of different crews, and it's a way for various different uh, uh, boats to race against each other. The other way of doing this is called one design, where all the boats are of the same. Think of brand and size. Right, right. right? There's a one design and all the boats are the same. Uh, And and that's sort of another way of doing it. Um, And and they're both popular, uh, but you can imagine the the one design, you know, it's hard to get an event uh, with 100 boats in it that's that's of the one design rule because there's just, there isn't that many people who want to buy that particular boat um, exactly the same. Uh, So, it's a very interesting when they first started this back in 1977, um, you had to use celestial navigation. Uh, celestial navigation is how you navigate by the stars and the sun and the sextant. Uh, so it's old school. And uh, 
that's what the rules were was you had to, you had to use that and you have to remember that Bermuda is sort of a tiny little dot out in the Atlantic Ocean so you know if you're off by a few degrees uh, you might sail right by it um, so that really brought into uh, bear navigation skills uh, as well as sort of predicting weather and wind and all those types of things. These days, they use electronic navigation, uh, i.e. GPS, uh, which sort of makes uh, knowing where your target is uh, and its course and heading and distance from where you're at very easy to figure out. Uh, but there's still a lot of uh, skill involved in figuring out how to make the boat go fast and sort of knowing what the weather patterns will be. Because sometimes, because of weather patterns, you can't go on a straight line between where you are and where you want to get to. Or going on a straight line, number one, may not be possible. Or number two, it may not actually be the fastest way of getting there. It may actually be faster to go a little longer, um, but uh, you'll get there quicker. Is that because of the winds or the currents? What's the rationale behind that? Yeah, both, right? I mean, a sailboat can't go directly into the wind. So Bermuda is nominally directly south from Marion. So if you have a southerly breeze, you can't go straight towards Bermuda. You have to sort of zigzag your way down. And then the question is, how big do you want to make the zigzags? <laughs> and sometimes if you go 100 miles further east or west, the wind might be in a different direction. So you might be able to go 100 miles further east than you want to go, but there you'll have a southerly breeze. So the wind will be pushing you much faster towards the, and you don't have to zigzag, right? But then you have to make up that 100 miles when you get to the other end. So it, it, it really is, uh, there's, there's a lot more involved than sort of driving your car from, uh, you know, New York to Los Angeles, <laughs> Although I guess, you know, there too, there's a lot of different routes and you got to take into account construction and traffic and all those types of things. So there's a lot of variables involved. Cool. We should do a whole nother episode on using a sextant. Well, uh, we'll, we'll have to find a guest to help us do that, Mike. Okay. <laughs> because uh, I, uh, I do not know how to do that. I think we uh, should do I, that. I think it'd be cool for listeners because I, right. I think everybody who's young, who's grown up doing this uses GPS. It's just like driving in a car, right? I, I have students and they, they don't, they, they don't have a map, like a paper map. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this would be pretty interesting. I saw when I was on one of my first sailing trips, uh, my friend, my best friend, Doug's uncle, Jim had a sextant and, and used it. Um, I stayed far away from it because it looked like it was very valuable. And if you dropped it, it would be a big problem. So I stayed away, uh, which is a good thing, uh, those that know me. Um, but yeah, this is this is fascinating. You know, these two races, the the Marion race um, and, um, and the um, Newport race, it reminds me of a diner I was at. I think it was in Quakertown, Pennsylvania called the Plain and Fancy. I think it was John's Plain and Fancy Diner. And one side of the diner was fancy and the other side was plain. And one side of the menu was fancy and the other side was plain. And these two races strike me as kind of the plain and fancy race, right? Like the fancy boats, they all go to the Newport one. And then this one, you can take any boat you want and you have these adjustments and kind of anything goes and it's more for fun. Does that uh, align with kind of what it is or is it, am I off yeah, base I, on that? <clears throat> no, I think, I think that's a pretty good analogy, Mike. Um, 
and, and you know, each each one of these races, and there's lots of different races around uh, that if you're into racing, right? There's the typical Wednesday or Thursday night, uh, they call it the beer can race, right? You, mm-hmm. you go out into the bay, you race around a couple of buoys, and then, and then you go have some libations. Um, those tend to be pretty relaxed. Uh, and then there's very serious races. You know, there's around-the-world races uh, mm-hmm. where people will race around the world nonstop. Some of them race solo around the world. Um, so they're, they take all different sorts of flavors that, that you can imagine from racing uh, a, a, a little dinghy sailboat that, you know, you can probably buy for less than 1000 bucks, and you can get out on the bay at the local sail club and just have a blast sailing and learning your skills all the way to uh, some of these boats or America's Cup, which is uh, going on uh, right now as we speak. Uh, or starting to get ready for America's Cup, I should say. It's going to come uh, later this uh, later this year, or early next year. Uh, you know where people spend hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> to develop those boats and pay the crews and a real professional event. So it really runs the gamut. And they're not <clears throat> using sextants on those boats, I don't think. Are they? <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure if there's. There, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if there's some long distance race still in existence someplace that requires you to use a sextant. Yeah. You right? But I'll bet they have one. I mean, like I know my friend's uncle said, look, in case the GPS stops working, I need this, right? And I need to. That's right. I need to know how to use it. And every time I sail at night, I use it to keep so that I keep fresh, right? And I keep this skill up. Well, so there's this there's this notion of we'll take a little bit of a side here, Mike. There is this notion of uh, and it's drawn from the, the airline industry, although you know sailing was around a long, boating was around long before the airline industry. This notion of redundancy, right? This notion of having more than sort of one system in place, because particularly for critical systems, and 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 navigation is really important uh, on on a boat or or on an airplane. And you can say, well, I have two or three GPSs. Right. So that's what most people's solution to that is, is they carry two or three GPSs. Well, what if the satellites go out? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. right. Sunspots right. or something like this. Right. Right. Yeah, right. What if the satellites go wacky? Mm-hmm. And, and we know there's going to be a point in time where that happens. Or we, hacked. We, right. Yeah. Right. Or hacked or whatever. Right. We know. Uh, so. So what if, what if that happens? And, and there, there's a lot of controversy about there, there used to be the system. That was uh, in place was called Loran. I forget what it stands for, but it's L O R A N, and that preceded GPS. And it was primarily coastal navigation, and it was these various different radio beacons that you could tune into, and you could sort of triangulate your location and figure out a heading and course. And and the U.S. Coast Guard, I believe, used to uh, develop and maintain those systems. And I remember a number of years ago, they decided that's it. We're abandoning it because GPS has just gotten to the point. You know, it's on your freaking phone, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Right. Oh, it's on my, I've I've seen, it on my watch. Right. It's on your watch. Yeah. So, so, and, and there was a lot of controversy about that because people were saying, well, what, what, we, you know, we can't be reliant just on one technology for something that's super critical. <clears throat> and, and interestingly enough, uh, you know, uh, maps on, on boats are called charts. They're not called roadmaps. They're called mm-hmm. charts. And they, too, were, were printed usually by <clears throat> various different government agencies. And 
the United States just announced they're going to stop printing charts. Yeah, they're still going to collect the data. They're beautiful, right? They're these big format on this nice right. paper, right? They're beautiful. Right. You can put them on your wall in a frame, right? Right. They're still collecting the data, but they're only going to be available in electronic form. So if you want to print one, you can, right? Mm -hmm. But it used to be you could print them or uh, there's actually a pretty big market and and third parties printing them and putting together putting them together in packages and stuff like that. Uh, but that too is slowly starting to go away and there's a lot of debate and controversy on if you're on a boat and you're doing cruising, coastal cruising, should you have paper charts with you? And I have paper charts with me. I'm a believer in that. And and I'll tell you when when we're out cruising, uh it's different during the daytime, but nighttime is a, little, is, is a little more critical. If we're out at night, and even during the day, if we're going on a longer trip, every half hour, I write down the GPS coordinates in a logbook. So at least I have data. If the whole GPS system goes out of whack, <laughs> right, I can at least go back 30 minutes and figure out, no more than 30 minutes on a paper chart and figure out where I am. Because the paper charts have latitude and longitude on them. And that's what basically GPS coordinates tell you is latitude and longitude. So I can, I can transcribe those GPS coordinates onto the paper chart and I can figure out where, I, where I'm at. The digitalization of sailing, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. So it, it's, uh, but that's, uh, like you said, that's probably another episode or two where we can talk about navigation, various different ways of navigating, safety systems, and we'll find somebody who knows uh, the, the subtleties of a sextant and how to use it. Love it. So yeah. tell me about your visit to Marion. Let's, let's switch gears a little bit. What did you do? What did you see? Yeah, so uh, we spent three days uh, in Marion at the Beverly Yacht Club. Uh, and we did that on a mooring. A mooring is a, a, a big balloon, a big ball uh, that's attached to the ground, uh, attached to the bottom of the, of the harbor. And you can you can tie your boat to it, so it's a it's a nice way of sort of a secure way of of getting your boat tied up and uh, uh, being well secure, not having to worry about your anchor drag. And the cool thing was this spot that they gave us at the Beverly Yacht Club, the mooring ball they gave us at the Beverly Yacht Club, was right next door. The next mooring to it was was a boat called Tabor Boy, uh, and uh, Tabor, and I'll talk about Tabor Boy in, in, in a second because this was, this was one of the highlights of the visit. Um, but the, the Beverly Yacht Club is really nice. It has about a half dozen moorings for guests. Uh, so, you know, you got to call ahead and make sure they have one for you. And it's in a well-protected bay. And this bay is full of moorings, right? There's a whole bunch of uh, yacht clubs there. And there's some uh, private, mostly private moorings. And there's probably three or 400 boats in this bay, Mike. It's just remarkable how many boats are uh, moored there. Uh, and and uh, the Beverly Yacht Club was really gracious, very nice. Uh, the moorings are sturdy and well-maintained. Uh, they have a launch service. Uh, the launch service is a little boat that comes out and picks you up on off of your boat and brings you to shore. And uh, they do that. And it was uh, the person who did that was really gracious and very friendly and shared a lot of information uh, with us. Uh, so I, I highly recommend it. It was a, a great place to go. They have a nice building. They have nice grounds, a nice lawn. They have lawn chairs out there. You can sit out there. 
and it's a real short, like two or three at five minutes at the most walk to to downtown Marion. But let All me right. talk about tell, ta- tell me Tabor about the Boy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is. Uh, so the Tabor Boy is a 92-foot gaff-rigged two-masted schooner that's been part of the Tabor Academy since 1954. So the Tabor Academy is a private prep school located in Marion, Mass. And uh, so Tabor Boy is what's called a sailing school vessel. Uh, And it's one of two uh, Coast Guard inspected sailing school vessels uh, in her class that operate within the Northeast. So, uh, and it will have a, I'll have a link to uh, Tabor Academy and Tabor Boy, as it's called, uh, in the show notes. Uh, but the, what, what they do with this boat is really interesting, right? So each fall and spring, the schooner is used as a sail training vessel. And the, com- the crew is made up of 22 students under the leadership of uh, uh, Captain James Guile. Uh, and a student executive officer. So it's a leadership opportunity for students, right? And they do team building and character building uh, and sail training and seamanship. And then uh, during the summer, the schooner takes groups of uh, 12 to 15 incoming Tabor students on uh, one of uh, these week-long cruises off the coast of Massachusetts. So, I mean, what a great experience. It's, it, you're not on this modern, you know, luxury yacht. You're on this, on this old wooden schooner where you have to hoist the sails by hand. And, and you know, it really, and, and I'm sure they use sextants for navigation there, Mike. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so it's really kind of cool. And then every few years, uh, Tabor Boy actually heads uh, south to the Caribbean uh, where they take students down for for doing some coral reef uh, ecology research. So uh, really, really cool. They just released a new documentary called Celestial, uh, which tells the, the story of uh, the students, a student crew navigating celestially, right, using sextants, aboard Tabor Boy in the 2019 Marion to Bermuda race. The wow. race we just I talked check about. Check this out. So they entered that uh, race, uh, and they made a, a little uh, video about it. And uh, so it's really cool. Uh, so it just all ties Marion to Bermuda together and Tabor Boy and uh, uh, the, uh, the Yacht Club there. So uh, it's really... Uh, Really, really nice. Uh, the Beverly Yacht Club is where the boat's kept. And I'll have a link to the video in the show notes as well, to the documentary Celeste, Celestial, as I should say. Um, let me take a switch here. And uh, this bay uh, uh, also has uh, an anchorage or two in it. Um, there's a small anchorage that is well-protected uh, just as the moorings at the Beverly Yacht Club are. Uh, and the small anchorage is just past red number eight. So that means something to sailors <laughs> it's on the chart. You can find red mm-hmm. number eight on the north side of Ram Island. So there's a little island in the bay, uh, which kind of uh, uh, forms, helps to form the bay. And you can, you can anchor on the north side of it. There's probably room in there for two or three boats. It's not a very big anchorage. Uh, there's a much larger anchorage 
uh, just east of red number six, uh, which is on the, uh, the more open side of the island, the open side of the bay, uh, but that's not really well protected from southerly winds. Uh, so that's sort of a, a, a good place to anchor if the winds are favorable uh, to you. There's also a town, a town dock uh, in Sipican Harbor, and the town dock is just north of uh, the Beverly Yacht Club, and you can uh, tie your dinghy up there, uh, et cetera, and get access uh, uh, to town as well. So I th- any other questions cool. about well, the— Well, you know I'm a food guy. Where did you eat? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So one of the nice things about uh, the Anchorage uh, or or the Beverly Yacht Club is that uh, it's a very, very, very short walk to downtown. Uh, uh, five minutes. And and downtown. Uh, uh, well, Mike, you, you know a lot about Potsdam, New York. So think of downtown Beverly as sort of uh, analogous to downtown Potsdam. Uh, not a lot of restaurants, but a few. And it's about, you know, a couple blocks long. And uh, the, the, it's very residential there, uh, even where the Yacht Club is located. Uh, you know, sometimes Yacht Clubs are in these very sort of industrial or commercial sections. But this is a very residential. It's uh, houses all around the bay. And uh, we had a great lunch at a place called Kate's Simple Eats. Uh, and I believe they're open for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And a really nice place to to have some food. Very casual. Uh, prices were uh, very very uh, uh, reasonable there. And uh, Marion's interesting. It it's sort of the quintessential New England town. Uh, its roots go back to 1679, when the town was first settled as a village known as Sipican, uh, and part of Rochester, which is a larger municipality there, not Rochester, New York, but, you know, we, we have this habit here in the United States of uh, having many towns with the same names. Or Rochester, Minnesota, or Rochester, or Roch- Michigan, right? I've been to both yes, of those as well. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so Rochester, Mattaposit, and Sipican were uh, separate villages under the domain of Rochester, uh, and these economies grew sort of in different ways. And uh, eventually, uh, Sipican uh, uh, got its independence from Rochester. And then Sipican was renamed to Marion in honor of the Revolutionary War hero, Francis Marion. Uh, and they, that was done in 1852. Uh, so the name of the harbor, Sipican Harbor, stayed. Uh, but the name of the town was changed from Sipican to Marion in 1852. Uh, and it's got a, you know, very nice little town. Um, and uh, they've really done a good job in sort of preserving the rich history of of the town. You know, it's again, it's like these New England towns that um, they've paid attention to and they have preserved some of the old buildings and uh, uh rehabilitated them if need be and it, it's really a nice place to kind of just walk around on a nice day and just uh, appreciate the history that exists there many of them have little plaques on them or there'll be little stories that you can read along the way um, that sort of fill you in on on uh, on the location it was a great great uh, place to spend several days 
so it was it was really nice yeah that does sound like a great place to sail to Bela. so thanks for sharing your experiences uh let's wrap it up listeners thanks for joining us uh we hope you found this episode interesting if you have questions about what we've discussed please feel free to drop us an email at sailing the east all one word at gmail.com hey and please do subscribe if you haven't already also we'd love to have you give us a rating uh, or a review in your favorite podcasting app that helps others to find the podcast so until next time signing off from upstate new york see you soon mike sounds great bela and from over here in munster germany auf wiedersehen <laughs>